This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. You may be seated. Kids, if you are going to class, you are dismissed. Right? Right. Uh, One quick announcement. For those of you who are new here or don't know me, this is what happens when I get involved in administrative tasks. It doesn't go well. Um, I forgot to ask when youth group was, and that's the first and third Sundays of the month. So that thing I talked about last week about the Sunday night sermons, that is going to be the second Sunday of February. I think that's the 13th. So February 13th, we'll start our Sunday night sermons at 4 p.m. I'd invite you here. If you don't know what I'm talking about, come up and ask me. I will let you know. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And I decided this morning, I'm going to read you a prayer out of this little book called The Valley of Vision. Very good book if you don't have it. So let's go to the Lord before we go to His Word. Blessed Lord Jesus, no human mind could conceive or invent the gospel. Acting in eternal grace, you are both its messenger and its message. Lived out on earth through infinite compassion, applying your life to insult, injury, death, that we might be redeemed, ransomed, and freed. Blessed you are, O Father. For contriving this way, eternal thanks to you, O Lamb of God, for opening this way. Praise everlasting to you, O Holy Spirit, for applying this way to our heart. Glorious Trinity, impress the gospel on our soul until its virtue diffuses every faculty. Let it be heard, acknowledged, processed, and felt. Teach me to secure this mighty blessing. Help me to give up every darling lust, to submit my heart and life to its command, to have it in my will, controlling my affections, molding my understanding, to adhere strictly to the rules of true faith, not departing from them in any instance, nor for any advantage in order to escape evil, inconvenience, or danger. Take us to the cross to seek glory from its infamy. infamy. Strip us of every pleasing pretense of righteousness by our own doing. O gracious Redeemer, we have neglected you too long, often crucified you, crucified you afresh by our hardness, and put you to open shame. We thank you for the patience that has borne with us so long and for the grace that now makes us willing to be yours. Unite us to yourself with inseparable bonds that nothing may ever draw us back from you, my Lord and my Savior. Amen. That's a good one. Well, we are not going to waste any time. We finished 1 Peter last week. We're going to begin 2 Peter this week. If you want to start heading there in your Bibles, 2 Peter comes right after 1 Peter. 
I'll let you find it from there. But before we jump into this letter, I want to take some of you younger folks back to the olden days when faxes were cool. The internet was just a passing fad and cell phones didn't exist. The good old days. Because back then there was a gentleman named Bo Jackson. Bo was an incredible athlete. He played both professional football and baseball, and that's not unheard of. The, the, the thing was, was that he was Hall of Fame material for both. He was an incredible athlete. But during Bo's career, he had a, a shoe endorsement with Nike, and the commercial that they would play were, were all about Bo knows. They would dress him up in all different kinds of uniforms, football, baseball, surfing, tennis, everything, soccer, and they would say, Bo knows. And, and the hook was, was that because Bo was such a great athlete, he knew what you should wear for any given sport. Of course, it was his shoe. But Bo knows everything, surfing, Bo knows tennis, Bo knows this. They even brought Michael Jordan in one time. They dressed up Bo in a basketball uniform. They got him about halfway through Bo knows, and then Michael Jordan goes, uh-uh. And they said, well, he does know this and this and this. But that was the point, was Bo knows. So we begin Second Peter. I want to ask you, what does Peter know? What does Peter know? Because Peter was an incredible man, and he lived an incredible life. Over the last few months, we've looked at this first letter that he wrote from Rome, and that hasn't changed. He's still in Rome. Where in Rome he's writing from has changed. Now he's writing from a prison in Rome. You have to remember that Roman prisons weren't like American prisons. It's not the three hots and a cot with cable TV and a snack bar that we think of. History tells us that Peter, like Paul, is being held in a prison called the Mamertine Prison in Rome. It's an old cistern. It's about 15 by 15 feet wide and about 8 feet tall that was remodeled to be used as a holding cell. But probably the worst part of this Mamertine prison was that it was immediately adjacent to the main sewer that ran through Rome. And so most historians believe that because this, this holding cell was subterranean, that prisoners often probably spent uh, their lives in up to two feet of standing sewage, depending on the level of the Roman sewer. However, Peter probably won't be there very long because Romans didn't incarcerate people for long periods of time like we do. Their, their prisons were more holding cells for your trial. So if you, were, if you were innocent, you were freed. If you were guilty, you were flogged, branded, exiled, or executed. There wasn't much middle ground. That was it. So no matter what happens, Peter won't be here for long. In fact, look down at verse 12 of chapter 1 in 2 Peter. He says, Therefore I intend to always remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in them. He says in verse 13, I think it is right, as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Verse 14, listen. He says, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So Peter doesn't have much longer in this prison, or in this life for that matter. So as we begin this letter... We need to keep in mind that this is Peter's swan song. These are the final words we have from an incredible man who lived an incredible life. 
And an incredible is kind of an understatement. Peter was one of only three disciples who witnessed God crack the door to heaven and reveal the true identity of their rabbi. Scripture tells us that Peter was the first to preach under the power of the newly indwelt Holy Spirit, and 3,000 people believed through just that one message. He was the first to take the gospel to the Gentiles when he preached to a man named Cornelius and a bunch of other people in Caesarea. And Peter and Paul were the only two apostles to raise someone from the dead. Peter raised a woman named Dorcas from the dead. I think she died when she realized her name was Dorcas. But Peter had an amazing life. So what I want you to imagine is I want you to imagine that we received a letter. And this letter said that Peter doesn't have much longer to live. So you and I have made this emergency trip to Rome to see our friend one last time. And perhaps through the, the tiny little opening in the ceiling of this, this cistern prison, these are the last few moments we will spend with our friend on this side of heaven. And, and not only is this the last time we'll talk to Peter, but outside of John's letters and Revelation, this is the last time we'll hear from any apostle. So what do you think he would say? What would be the dying words of such an incredible man like Peter? What would he think is, is important enough to make them his last thoughts to us? Because like Bo, Peter knows. Peter knows what it means to be a Christian. So what would Peter's last words to you and I be? What does he know we will need to keep us steady and strong on our journey to heaven? It's the question we're going to answer this morning. Look at the beginning of verse 1. Well, the first thing I want you to notice is that Peter knows what it means to fall away. It says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice the dual name and dual title. He is both Simon and Peter, and he says he is both servant and apostle. At birth, he was named Simon by his father Jonah. But many years later, a man named Jesus asked his disciples, he said, who do others say that I am? And the disciples answered, they say, well, some say that you're a prophet, and some say that you're, you know, the, 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 uh, some mistake you for John the Baptist. Some even say you're Elijah, come back from the dead. And Jesus said, okay, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, well, you are the, 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 the son of God. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, to which Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And he says, so from now on, I'm going to call you Peter, because on that rock, I will build my church. Now, literally, Jesus said, I'm going to call you Petros or stone, because on that Petra or rock, I will build my church on the on the rock of what you just said. On the rock of the truth that I am the Messiah I will build my church. And so Jesus named Simon's, uh, Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter because Peter was the first disciple to proclaim the truth that Jesus was the Messiah. But was that who Peter was? Was Peter that rock that his name implied? Well, if by rock you mean warm marshmallow, then yes. 
As, as Bob pointed out this morning, Peter scolded Jesus multiple times for predicting that he was going to die. When God the Father audibly told Peter, James, and John, listen to Jesus, the first thing Peter said was what he thought would be a good idea to do. Worst of all, though, again, as Bob pointed out, at the moment when Jesus needed Peter the most, when, when Jesus was alone in front of the religious leaders, being beaten and spat on and wrongly accused, Peter denied knowing him three times. In fact, the third time Peter denied knowing Jesus, it was in a, a, a flurry of fear and cowardice and profanity to a, an apparently very intimidating young girl. And so the Bible says that immediately following that, Peter remembered what Jesus had said, and he broke down and he wept. Peter knows what it means to fall away. How about you? Do you know what it means to be a failure? Do you know what it means to make a mess of things? To make a mess of things that you can't fix. Do you know what it means to be ashamed to look Jesus in the eye? Peter knows what it means to fall away. And he doesn't want the same for us. Well, after Peter had denied Jesus, he didn't really see Jesus again for any length of time for many weeks, except for one brief moment after Jesus had risen. So Peter and the, some of the disciples had gone back up north to the Sea of Galilee to start fishing again. And, and early one morning when they were coming back, this man on the shore yells out to them in the boat, Do you have any fish I can have? The men in the boat were like, No, it was a rough night. We don't have any. And the guy on the shore says, Hey, you know, throw your nets on the other side of the boat and you'll catch some. And so Peter starts getting the nets ready. And John was like, man, guys, I tell you what, I am having some serious deja vu right now. I think we've heard this before. And John, it says, looks at Peter. He says, hey, Pete, that's Jesus. And the Bible says that when Peter recognized that that was Jesus on the, on the shore, it says Peter put on his shirt and threw himself into the sea. I picture this like tripped on the edge of the boat, full belly flop into the ocean, started paddling. The rest of the disciples did the normal, normal thing. They rowed back to shore. They're like, hey, Pete, we could, we could row you back to shore. And he said, no, that'll take too long. I'm going to swim. And the Bible says that after they had eaten their breakfast together, Jesus took Peter aside to talk to him. And it says that Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And three times Peter responded, yes, I do. Even though Simon had made such a mess of things. Once again, Jesus restored him back to Peter. Now surely this was a private conversation between Jesus and Peter. So the Bible doesn't say this, but I can't help but think that Jesus didn't remind Peter of what he had told him before he was going to uh, deny him, when he had predicted that he was going to deny him. In Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 31, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Now listen to this. 
But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So when you have turned again, that's what Jesus is doing right now, is turning him. So when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Brothers and sisters, what I want you to see is after thousands of years, that is still what Peter is doing right now. He's strengthening us. You see, Peter knows what it means to fall away, but Peter also knows what it means to be restored despite his failure. Which means look at the second half of verse 1. He's writing to those, he says, who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Think about what he's saying. He's saying that your faith is equal to those who saw Jesus transfigured. He's saying your faith is equal to those who walked and talked and slept and ate with Jesus. He's saying that your faith is equal to those who saw Jesus risen from the grave. He's saying your faith is equal to those who performed miracles in Jesus' name. How is that possible? How can he say that about you and I? Well, again, it's because Peter knows that his faith was not his own. He had already failed terribly at that. But remember what Jesus said. Jesus said he had prayed for Peter's faith. Meaning Jesus had protected Peter from falling too far and then restored him. In other words, Peter knows our faith is equal to his because it's not about what we can do. It's about what Jesus did. Peter knows our faith is equal to his because we have received that faith from the same God and Savior. And that same God and Savior is guarding our faith. Therefore, our faith is equal to his. Peter knows your faith is equal to his because his faith and ours is from Christ. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died to take away your sins, then your faith is of equal standing to Peter's because our faith comes from Jesus. What an incredible encouragement from this man who stands at death's door to remind us that what we value most that that little sliver of us that clings to hope our faith peter wants to make us sure he wants to make sure we know that it's not about your being able to hold on to it it's about christ holding on to you He knows that people like us, we need to know that we cannot be taken out of the hand of our Savior because Peter experienced in real time what it looks like to fall away but to be kept by his Savior. Peter knows that Jesus is in the business of restoring failures and then commissioning them to strengthen others because Peter knows what it means to fall away and he also knows what it means to be restored, which means there's one last thing that Peter knows. Because Peter knows what it means to fall away, and because he knows what it means to be restored, then what he wants to do this morning and, and through the rest of this book is explain to us how not to fall away. 
He wants to tell us how to remain steady and established and firm in our salvation. In fact, just look down at verse 10. He says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Why? He says, Because if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Skip over to verse 14 of chapter 2, where Peter is warning us about false teachers who are, are, are looking for someone to deceive. And listen to who he says these people are looking to deceive. He says, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice what? Unsteady souls. Peter doesn't want us to be enticed by, by false teachers. He wants us to be steady. And, and then flip to the second to the last verse of the book in chapter 3, verse 17. One more time he reiterates. He says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your what? Your own stability. Peter knows something that will keep us from falling away. He, he knows something that will keep us steady and stable and steadfast. So what is that? What does Peter know? Well, a better question and the question Peter is going to answer is, who does Peter know? Who does Peter know? Because Peter knows Jesus and he knows him very well. And what Peter knows is that growing in the knowledge of Jesus, our Lord, is what will keep us from falling away. Peter knows that growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will keep us from falling away. Look at verse 2. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Peter knows that someone can keep us steady on our journey to heaven. And, and he knows that knowing that person better is how we are going to stay sure and steady and, and established. In fact, knowing that person is going to be the resounding theme of this letter. Not falling away by growing in your knowledge of this person. Christian, if you want to keep from falling away, if you want to remain strong in this mortal life established, if you want to be able to stand against the devil's schemes, then grow in the knowledge of God and Jesus, your Lord and Savior. That's what Peter would say. Look again at verse 2. How is this grace and peace he speaks of, how is it going to be multiplied to us? He says, in or through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now one more time, flip back to the end of the book, to that verse that we looked at earlier in verse 17. Look what Peter says. He says, you therefore, beloved, be careful you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. How? How do we not do that? He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, this letter, 2 Peter. Peter knows what we need to keep from falling away is to know God better, to know Him more. Peter knows someone, and if he has one last chance to speak to us, 
If he has one last thing to say to us, he wants to tell us, how do we not do what he did? How do we not make the mistake that he made? How do we not lose our trust in Christ? If he has one last chance to speak to us, then he's going to tell us, knowing God is how a Christian keeps from falling away. So the question is, is how? How does knowing God keep me from falling away? How does knowing God do anything to help me in this life? How is that not just, just knowledge? Because listen, our culture today wants to tell us that feelings determine what we know. They want to tell us that feelings determine what we know. Whether or not there are two sexes, doesn't matter. If you're angry enough, that's not true. You don't know that. Whether gravity is real or not, doesn't matter. If you don't like gravity, if you're passionate enough, then gravity doesn't exist. You don't know that. Laws, if you are emotional enough, laws, you don't know that either. Our culture wants to tell us that, that our feelings determine what we know. When the Bible very clearly says what we know determines our feelings. Alistair Begg said it this way. He said he, said he hates it when he comes to a place and, he, and a worship leader comes out on stage and the first thing they say is, how are we feeling tonight? And he says, don't ask me how I feel. Ask me what I know. You see, we want our feelings to determine what we know because that puts us at the center of truth. If our emotions dictate what we know, then we become the center of truth. But the Bible is clear, we're not the center of anything, much less truth. What we know about God, it determines how we feel. What you know about God, it determines how you feel. Are you feeling overwhelmed, insecure, angry, anxious, helpless, injured, afraid? If you're feeling something like that, then the Bible would say that's because you need to know more about God. In fact, let me show you an example of this in real time. Flip to, flip to Psalm chapter 73. Psalm chapter 73. There's a priest named Asaph. Uh, Asaph is basically, kind of think of him like a worship leader for, for the temple. David had appointed him. And Asaph is struggling with how it always seemed like the wicked, they get away with whatever, whatever they want. He's struggling with this. And in Psalm chapter 73 and verse 1, Asaph says, truly God is good to Israel, to, to those who are pure in heart. But listen to what he says. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He wasn't steady. He says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's in danger of falling away, just like Peter was talking about. He's envious that the wicked seem to prosper. And, and then in verses 4 through 12, he explains why. It's just briefly, in verse 4, he says that the wicked, they live a comfortable life until they die. In verse 5, he says that they don't seem to ever get caught. Down in verse 7, he says that, that they're well fed. In verse 9, he says they laugh at God. 
like God's really going to do anything about it. And so, so in verses 13 through, through 15, Asaph begins to think, he says, why do I bother doing right? Why not just join them? He says in verse 13, he says, in vain I have kept my heart clean. Now let's skip down to verse 18 and look how Asaph's heart changed. He says in verses 18 through 20, he says, now I know that the wicked will be judged. He says in verses 21 through 26, he says, when I was bitter, listen to this, when I was ignorant of you, in verse 22, ignorance is the opposite of knowledge. When I was ignorant of you, I was bitter. He says, but now I know that you are continually with me. And so he concludes in verses 27 and 28, he says, now I see that God is good to be near how did that happen? How did Asaph go from being envious and bitter in verses 1 through 15 to confident and secure in verses 18 through 28? We'll look at verses 16 and 17 in the middle. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. and Then I discerned their end. until he went into the sanctuary of God, until he saw God, until he was reminded who God is, until he grew in his knowledge of God, until he wasn't ignorant of who God is anymore, until then he was bitter. He went into the temple and was reminded. In other words, Asaph grew in his knowledge of God. He was reminded of God's holiness and power and sovereignty when he went into the temple and saw him. And that knowledge of God, that that knowing who God was, that being reminded of who God was, it fortified Asaph. It strengthened him. And it encouraged him so much that he had a complete 180 degree turn from how he felt. And Peter knows the same thing back in 2 Peter. Peter knows that growing in the knowledge of God will keep us from falling away, just like Asaph. Listen to me. Peter knows that if you're falling into shame, he knows you need to know more about God's grace. Peter knows that if you're falling into fear, then you need to know more about God's power and assurance and sovereignty. If you're struggling with impurity, then you need to know more about God's purity. If you're struggling being anxious, if you're feeling anxious, then you need to know more about God's provision. Because our God is a holy, powerful God and a providing one. He is a God who sets the standard and supplies the strength. He is a God who makes the rules and makes us righteous. He is a God who passes the law and then provides the provision. And He is a God who condemns the sin and then contributes the sacrifice. In the words of the famous preacher S.M. Lockridge, I would ask you, I wonder, do you know Him? Do you know Him? My Bible says that He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the defender of the defenseless. He's the righteousness of the unrighteous. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Lord of Lords. And He's the King of Kings. Do you know Him? His love has no limits. His mercy has no measurement. His grace has no guile. His salvation has no shortcomings. 
His purity has no parallel. His deliverance has no deficiency, and His judgment knows no jurisdiction. Do you know Him? He is Abba and the Almighty. He is the just and the justifier. He is the creator and the comforter. He is the sovereign and the sympathizer. He is the great I am and the giver of life. He is the everlasting father and the eventual comer. I wonder, do you know him? He is the majestic Messiah and the merciful master. He is the deliverer of judgment and the bringer of mercy. He is the creator of life and the destroyer of sin. He is the victor of death and the one who died. He is the lamb who was slain and the shepherd of the sheep. His name is Jehovah Jireh and Jesus Christ. I wonder, do you know him? He wants for nothing yet gives everything. He is the majesty of heaven who was born in a manger. He is the creator of mouths who was spat on in silence. He is the almighty judge who was found guilty. He is the lion of Judah who was nailed to a cross. That's my God. Do you know him? Peter knows him. And he wants you to know him better. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our confidence and that our souls to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. Stand with me, please, and let's make that our prayer.